0: Welcome to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General, and a current Washington Post columnist. I'm joined today by four of your favorite feds, charter feds all well-known to anyone who's been near a television or this podcast in the last couple years. First, Paul Fishman of Arnold & Porter, former U.S. attorney for New Jersey. Joyce Vance of the University of Alabama, and MSNBC contributor, also a former United States attorney in Alabama. Matthew Miller, a partner at Via Novo and the former director of the Office of Public Affairs at DOJ, and Frank Figliuzzi, the former FBI assistant director and an NBC News national security contributor. How is that for an all-star squad to discuss the news of the week, which was dominated by the story of the whistleblower complaint in the national intelligence community, that was forwarded to the Inspector General of Intelligence, who determined it to present a matter of urgent concern, and therefore, under the statutory scheme, to prepare to forward it to the chair of the House Intelligence Committee. And at that point, all hell broke loose, and another impasse between Congress and the White House took place form and seem to be intractable. Details emerged that the call concerned a promise that the whistleblower found very troubling and that we now know appears to have involved the president, President Trump's efforts to get the Ukraine government to provide dirt on Joseph Biden's son, Hunter who worked at the Ukrainian gas company for a time. We'll develop this as we go, but let's dive in, starting with, I think it'd be useful to get a sort of feel for this whistleblower and the program. It's a special program for the national security community, unlike other whistleblower programs, and I'm a whistleblower lawyer. It's not a matter of a, of a financial reward or anything like that. It just gives a cover for someone in the national intelligence community. I wonder, Frank, given your having come from there, if you have a sense of it and if you have any sense of who this anonymous person is generically who has started this whole latest controversy between the White House and the Hill.
1: Well, I think first, there's it's important to say, to, to just tell our listeners why there is an intelligence uh, whistleblower provision and why it seems to have some unique aspects versus some other whistleblower provisions. It's the nature of intelligence to come right up to that line of being invasive in terms of privacy, uh, doing things that are extremely uh, cloaked in secrecy, often highly classified actions and so that's ripe for abuse and so the 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 whistleblower provisions for the intelligence community were designed to recognize that there's got to be an outlet for career professionals or anyone to come forward and say I think I think we're getting into uh, illegality I think we're getting into exploitation and abuse and and the one aspect I think that strikes me as as kind of being unique, is that it it ties the hands of others when this whistleblower comes forward. It says to the inspector general, if you find this credible and urgent, you've got no choice but to come uh, and report it to the intelligence committees in Congress.
0: Why do we need it in the first place? Why can't the professional just come forward, tell his bosses and hope, you know, and assume everyone will do the right things within the, the national intelligence community?
1: Well, I think we've become painfully aware, certainly during this presidential administration, that assuming that people will do the right thing, uh, it doesn't work. And there's a concept that agencies should be able to police themselves, but yet there should be some independent body attached to that agency who understands the work of the agency, the people of the agency, and can independently investigate the allegation. That's why there's this provision where you've got to find it, somebody's got to find it credible and urgent. And so that's why we, we want that kind of process in place.
0: Well, so what, the IG, why not the DNI? Who, does the IG have some sort of independence here? Well, that's the way inspectors general are set up, typically
1: to have that degree of independence. What's broken here and what we're seeing not work here is that the DNI has stepped in and asserted some kind of authority that, that quite frankly, he doesn't really have. And yet, he's gone to the Department of Justice to try and get them to weigh in. They've weighed in, and again, that's not part of the whistleblower provision here. So, someday when we're all looking back and we're we're taking notes, hopefully now on what needs to be corrected in the future in the next administration, this is one of them. We've got to we've got to even strengthen more the in, uh, independence of inspectors general.
0: Although it is interesting to know what you would possibly do here. Does everyone agree? The statute just says it couldn't be clearer. The, the IG just sends it to the Hill, the Intelligence Committee. There's never been a problem. This is the first problem, and it's sort of as clear as clear can be. Or is there some ambiguity that the administration is exploiting?
2: I actually think it's different than that a little bit. Maybe, I, maybe I'm reading it differently than, than you guys are, and I haven't uh, – and, and the Intelligence Community is not a place where I've lived, but my reading of the statute – is that the inspector, once the inspector general gets the complaint, that the person's not supposed to go directly to Congress. It's got to go to the IG. And the IG, if the satisfies the two criteria that Frank just outlined of, of credibility and urgency, the IG then has to report the claim to the DNI, to the Director of National Intelligence, who, of course, is a political appointee of the president. The, the DNI then has seven days to then himself report it to the Hill. It's not a discretionary call. The statute says that the DNI is supposed to
0: report Shall, it, right? Shall report shall, it.
3: Shall. So I, I agree can. with Paul's call on that. But I think then the question becomes, how do you enforce it? What do you do if the DNI won't go along with it? Because they take this position that you can't review these decisions in court. You know, typically you think if it's a purely ministerial duty, file a petition for mandamus and have a court. Order the DNI to do what the law clearly says he must do, but the government apparently will take the position that this is an unreviewable decision, um, which just seems ludicrous to me. Well,
2: what's, what's also interesting, Joyce, is the look. The D the question is: Did the did the DNI decide not to do this on his own? Did he did he ask Bill Barr for advice? Did he tell the White House? Did the White House say he can't do it? I mean, the, presumably the president can often does tell people not to do stuff, as we know in this administration that they're supposed to do. Uh, And so that that one of the interesting questions here is not just that he refused to follow the law and didn't do it, um, but that but that other people weighed in who presumably have no role.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. Any speculation, Matt, about how the DOJ got into the act here in the first place?
4: Either the DNI went directly to DOJ or they went to the White House and DOJ was was brought into it that way. Either way. I think you have to blame the DNI there for not just doing what the statute says uh, and consulting with the White House when, in fact, we now know the subject of the complaint was the White House itself. I, I think, Harry, to your question, I think there are two problems that, that this reveals. One is what do you do when an administration is just lawless and doesn't follow the the, the plain language of, of the law, which they're doing here? But then there's a second one that the White House has sort of alluded to or, or the DNI has alluded to in in, in his letters – that there are, you know, privileges that the administration holds that are constitutional, that are beyond the statute. So, even if, even if the DNI, you know, said that, you know, he was going to comply with the statute, you have this, this, you know, thing that frankly is a bipartisan problem where you've had White Houses over the years asserting privileges where they can at times sort of ignore the law that they think impinges on the president's constitutional authorities. And that is a problem that, you know, I, we have all served in administrations that have self, helped kind of erect that imperial presidency. And that has always rested on the idea that the president would somehow would, would be acting in good faith. And what I think we're seeing is when we have a president, and we see it in this, we see it in all kinds of other other things. When you have a president that acts it in bad faith, that imperial presidency is incredibly dangerous and incredibly hard to check.
0: Yeah, well, let's try. But let's try to parse it a little more carefully, because it is true that administrations past, Democrat and Republican, have at least reserved to the president the final authority to determine, these are the words, what is classified information and what isn't. And and you can see that. But what is the possible connection of that prerogative, assuming it's preserved, and the refusal even to forward The complaint to Schiff here, you know, there's I don't see how the forwarding of the complaint itself threatens the ability of the president to determine what's classified or is the argument that somehow Schiff seeing it pierces some privilege and that is not mentioned in the statute?
4: that's exactly the argument and that's what I think President Clinton said this when he signed the act and so, and it, it's come up in you know other administrations have asserted this not this directly but that the president gets to decide what's classified and he gets to decide who gets to see that classified information so the president despite what the statute says could always say My conversations with a foreign leader are are classified. And there's also a reference to something that Bob Litt has referred to this, uh, that there is some foreign communications privilege when the president is talking to a leader of a foreign country. That's never been litigated. Well, it's never been
0: litigated, although, yeah, I'm interested in, Paul, what you might might think about this. It hasn't been litigated, but I think many people would agree that when a president is talking, uh, especially, you know, one-on-one to a foreign leader, there are, you know, we're at the the summit of kind of presidential interests and power. And that's what we are talking about here. So let's turn it around. Why is it? What's wrong with the administration's position here? That's what happened. And I'm sorry, a, you know, leader to leader call. I don't care what the law says, you can't pierce it. Why? Why are we all calling that lawless?
2: Well, so, so look, there, there are, I'm thinking about this from two different perspectives. One is from the, from the language of the statute itself, the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act of 1998. And when it talks about defining a matter of urgent concern, which we were just talking about, it defines that as, as first a, ser- a serious or flagrant problem, abuse, violation or law, of law or executive order. And then it goes on to diff- other stuff that doesn't really apply here. And the question that I think is on the table, and I think the White House's position, which strikes me as a bridge too far, is that the president of the United States can't actually commit a serious or flagrant violation of the law, mm-hmm. right? So so the or if the inspector general says that's I think it's that that the DNI can say it's not an urgent problem or the president can say it's not an urgent problem. And here's sort of the very interesting question, sort of where it dovetails to, I think, to an incredibly large extent with the way the the administration, the way the president and the way Bill Barr characterized the question whether the president of the United States can be prosecuted while in office. Right. In some sense. And whether the president can be questioned about his use of the pardon power, right? The issue is, are there things that the president of the United States is simply not allowed to do, right? So if, the, if any other public official said, I'm going to withhold $250 million in military aid unless you investigate the son of a presidential candidate of another party, then that would be an extortion. Right? If anybody else said, if you if you give me a campaign contribution, I will pardon you, that might be abroad. Right. If anybody else said, please go stop this investigation to protect me, that might be obstruction of justice. Right? But in in the world in which this White House is operating, and Rudy Giuliani basically said it, if the Mm -hmm. president of the United States decides to withhold military aid. So that in in exchange for some pressure on the Ukrainian president to investigate something that would help America, then that's not a violation of law and and that's really how this all comes out, right that they have a view that the president is essentially unfettered in some way at least at least until he leaves office, but that 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 it's not actually a crime that can be dealt with at the time. That's sort or of an Or can't
0: extro- even do it or inv- So, Joyce, what, I mean, what's your take? The, is the administration position here aggressive or lawless?
3: So I have great respect for Paul Fishman. I'm going to publicly <laughs> own that. One of the reasons I have respect for Paul is that when issues like this come up that are difficult... He doesn't have a knee-jerk reaction. He doesn't have a strong political lean. He tends to look at these issues and analyze them based on the facts and the law, which I think is very, very important. I try to emulate Paul in many ways. But I have a developing concern here that this administration is so lawless that when we are scrupulous about playing by the rules and thinking about, say, the limits of executive power and how that was pushed in the Obama administration that were just playing into their hands because they are completely lawless. And here's my example. Yesterday in the context of the ongoing uh, litigation over whether uh, Cy Vance, the uh, DA in Manhattan, can subpoena the president's tax records, the president's lawyers took the position not that the president can't be prosecuted, but that he can't even be investigated. They just flat out said, you can't investigate the president while he's the president. So what I see happening is as we play by the rules and think through the normal limits of executive power, everything that we do, bending over backwards to be fair, they take and and they start running for a whole new touchdown with that ball I'm not sure where that leaves us in this particular case, but I I think what it dictates is that although we do have to be fair, do have to think about the implications of the law as we analyze this, we should not be afraid to contextualize it in terms of this president's behavior and his contempt for the law. We need to find a path forward that preserves the country so that these rules that we all care about so much will continue to have meaning. Yeah, I mean,
0: that's a great point because – You're right. It's almost that they're arguing not even for, you know, an imperial presidency, but a divine one. But the problem with the Trump administration is always do you think about it in terms of the, you know, singular and precedent breaking outrage or do you have to think about presidents to come? Well, you know, what's your thought, Frank? Are we talking aggressive arguments or really uh, lawless ones in the resistance to even turning over the complaint?
1: So I want to address two things, executive privilege and then the classification issue. Let's assume that some that some or all of this reporting is correct and and that indeed the president had this multiple conversations allegedly with the president of Ukraine and and said or implied you get the military aid when you investigate my opponent Biden and or his son. I think the average American on the street would say that executive privilege should not apply to an unlawful act. And I and I think Clearly, one of the most popular statutes used um, federally for public corruption, Title 18 USC uh, 201B, talks about a public official directly or indirectly demanding, seeking, receiving, accepting, or agreeing to receive anything of value. Now, that would be a Ukrainian investigation of Biden in return for his official act, and that could be granting Ukraine half a billion dollars in military aid. That is very, very arguably a federal violation. I don't think executive privilege applies to that. So when when the DNI or the AG says one of the reasons we don't want this going to the hill is because it, it, it contains executive privileged uh, communications, I think that's nonsense. Now, there's an interesting argument on the classified side because as has already been said, the president can decide not only what's classified, but who gets to see that classified? You can actually, even in my prior position in the FBI, I could actually delineate and name the people that can own only those people who can see this particular document. But I think we'd agree, generally, that the president talking to a foreign leader about what he had for dinner probably isn't classified. Now, we're as we get closer to a discussion of quid pro quo, when you get military aid, now we have a, an interesting classification argument. But I would say- that if you give it to the House or Senate Intelligence Committee, they have all the classifications in the world. You can easily get around that classification
0: issue. Yeah, no, I so I think that's the core. I mean, I yield to, no Fed in respect of Paul Fishman, but I I think I do join Judge Vance's uh, majority opinion here, and for that very reason, granting. Can I say,
2: hey Harry, wait a minute. I, I, maybe maybe I maybe I lost this in the discussion, and I've been friends with Joyce. For, for a decade uh, and, and and she has that she has that such it's a intended. sweet voice way, of sticking, yeah. such a way yeah. of sticking the ship <laughs> right. the shoulder blade. but but I actually I actually thought we were in the same place I didn't mean to suggest that I thought what the what the white house was saying was okay what I meant to say was what they're they are taking their argument to a totally illogical extreme, which is the president can do anything he wants. Ah, Such so, so
0: please political join political me political because political it's political. not only that. So I think we would all agree there, but I also think that, you know, it would be one thing if they were generally deciding what's classified or not. But as Frank says, that's what the, ha- somebody has to put as a governmental solution here, somebody has to put eyes on this. Who's not in the line of uh, presidential supervision and that it be the, Chair, uh, you know, one of the gang of eight of the intelligence committee, that's what they do. They have all the clearances and the like. So I think the flaw in the pro presidential arguments here is just that they don't get you to a place where you can't even follow the legal scheme and give it to the, you know, to shift to look at. How do we see this or predict it playing out? What What is going to actually happen here now that the sides have kind of squared off and seem irreconcilable?
4: Sure, I don't. I don't think the White House is ever going to allow the whistleblower complaint to to be sent to uh, the Hill. But I don't think it matters because every day that the, right. that we get farther away from from or further away from this first being reported, we're finding out new details. We now know that the president uh, in, in that conversation with the uh, the president of Ukraine asked eight times for him to open an investigation into uh, Joe Biden's son. And I suspect before the next few days, we'll know everything that that is in the in that complaint.
0: And what? How do you see that happening? By the way, as it's so, somebody's. Con- kind of leaking, who knows it, or the whistleblower is? Why is this all coming out and from whom?
4: Yeah, I don't know if it's the whistleblower, but there are obviously people inside the administration that know about it. And what happens, good reporters that have a little nugget will go to the White House and dig a little bit more out and they'll get stuff that's, you know, even from defenders of the president that doesn't help the president because they're good, solid reporters. And I think the question then becomes, you know, a, a little bit of this legal debate. Well, was it okay for the president to do this? Was it legal? But really, it's a political debate. We're back to the question we've been in since the the Mueller report ended, which when you have a president that behaves this way, what's the possible remedy? And look, I have my own personal opinions about, uh, about that, but I'm not sure they're shared by Nancy Pelosi. And I think the question is, does a president in the middle of his reelection campaign with still 14 months to go who's shown he will you know use the power of the federal government to go after his political po- opponents in every conceivable way. Is that enough to get Democrats in the House to to try to impeach him. And we don't know the answer to that question yet.
0: Okay. Well, I actually have a somewhat contrary view here, not based on anything in particular, but I see this as playing out in some kind of accommodation. I think the White House is getting clobbered. It gets worse every day. As Matt says, it's all coming out anyway. And Schiff would be duty bound to not publicize it. So I actually think that, in the next week or so, there'll be some kind of accommodation where shift gets the substance of things but not the physical complaint, and you know they can go forward now that's you know completely co- raw speculation, of course, but it just seems to me that it, it this really arch position that the white house has taken in other matters serves them poorly here where they sort of uh, get get the worst coming out anyway and wind up looking unreasonable that'd be my best guess it's time now to take a moment to explain some of the terms and relationships That you've heard so much about in this podcast and on cable TV over the last couple years in a segment that we call Sidebar. Today, Grammy-nominated soul and blues singer Betty LeVette will tell us the definition of conspiracy under federal law. Betty LeVette's career began at age 16 in Detroit, Michigan, the Motor City. And her first single, My Man, He's a Loving Man, was released by Atlantic Records, but did not achieve lasting recognition for her incredible voice until she released her 2005 album, I've Got My Own Hell to Raise. Betty received a Pioneer Award from the Rhythm and Blues Foundation in 2006 and sang, as many of you saw, at President Obama's inaugural celebration. Her latest album, Things Have Changed, is available now.
5: What is conspiracy under federal law? Federal law and the law of many states treat conspiracy to commit a crime as a separate offense from the crime itself. Under federal law, there are dozens of statutes criminalizing conspiracy. 18 U.S.C. Section 371. The General Conspiracy Statute forbids a conspiracy to commit any other federal crime. Other laws criminalize conspiracy to commit specific offenses such as murder, drug trafficking, or civil rights violations. A conspiracy is an agreement between two or more people to commit a crime or achieve a legal end through improper means. The agreement can be established with evidence of express or implicit agreement. Some conspiracy laws also require proof of an overt act or a concrete step to achieve the goals of the conspiracy. This can include simple things like buying supplies, but the conspiracy is a crime even if its goals are not achieved. Conspiracy laws rest on the belief that criminal partnerships represent a different and greater threat than the underlying offenses. The Supreme Court has explained that groups of criminals are more likely to be successful and commit additional crimes and less likely to abandon plans than are lone criminals. Conspiracy law provides prosecutors with a powerful set of tools against a defendant. Section 371, conspiracies are punishable by up to five years in prison. Other conspiracy statutes carry the same penalties as the substantive offenses. A conspirator is also responsible for the foreseeable actions and consequences of the conspiracy, even if he or she did not specifically agree or know about them. At trial, the government may introduce the statements of co-conspirators, even if those statements would otherwise violate the rule against hearsay. A conspiracy continues until its objective is achieved or the co-conspirators stop committing overt acts to further it. An individual who has joined the conspiracy is responsible for its actions until he or she clearly withdraws from the conspiracy by telling the co-conspirators or going to the police. For Talking Feds, my name is Betty LeVette.
0: Thanks very much to Betty LeVette. If you have the chance to see Betty in concert, it is beyond worth it. You can see where her upcoming performances will be at BettyLeVette.com. Moving to another extraordinarily rich topic that puts on raw display the sort of complete opposition and antagonism between two branches of government, the executive and Congress, and that was this week's testimony by Trump partisan and perhaps future Senate candidate Corey Lewandowski. Well, not future Senate candidate. He used... One of his recesses to actually launch his campaign, so we know he's going to be running for senator in New Hampshire and very much as a sort of, you know, in the image of Donald Trump. So it was quite a hearing. Let's start with just, you know, between the Fox News MSNBC prisms, you saw complete different views about just whether objectively this guy was an effective witness or an ineffective witness. Matt, because you spent a lot of time with Congress, you know, was he an effective witness for what he wanted to achieve?
4: So I think you have to divide the hearing into the two sections, the time that the members are questioning him and the time that the committee's outside counsel, Barry Burke, was questioning him. And during the time the members are questioning him, I think he was effective in giving up nothing and saying nothing more than what, what he had said in the report. Probably not effective in launching a Senate campaign because he you know, he looks evasive and looks like a liar.
0: And not likable, uh, right? He seemed like kind of a jerky guy, no?
4: Yeah, and, and unlikable. The, the state of New Hampshire is not going to elect someone that acts like that to, to the United States Senate. That's that's a farce. But then I think that during the 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 last thirty minutes of the hearing, when Barry Burke got a hold of him, um, I, I thought he really, you know, I mean, reduced him to shreds. He uh, got him to admit that he lied on television, and really, I I think I think it was a very effective display, and the kind that if we saw more often in these hearings. Yeah. You know, would probably we'd probably be in a different place in terms of public opinion about what this investigation has found. Yeah. So,
0: uh, Joyce, you know, what would be your professional assessment as a prosecutor here of Burke's cross-examination? What, you know, did, did it, in fact, completely uh, demolish him?
3: So I thought that Barry Burke very effectively took Corey Lewandowski apart piece by piece for everyone to see. And anyone who maintained after watching that cross-examination that Lewandowski had done a good job was just posturing for the cameras. It was classic. I will play it for my law students. I think everyone needs to see 30 minutes of, you know, this is uh, this is classic, right? Trump and the, this administration, they've been great at using procedural and tactical maneuvers to keep the truth from coming to light. What happened with Barry Burke's cross-examination was the truth actually coming to light in an unfettered way.
0: Yeah, the crucible of cross-examination, right? I mean, imagine, say, a line of questioning like that directed towards, say, the president or Don McGahn. Paul, you, you're, uh, you, you, you agree with the professional kudos for Burke here?
2: Well, yes, but I think that does beg the larger point, which is that, um, and I think Matt got it right, if this happened all the time, people would think differently about, A, how Congress conducts its investigations, and B, we'd get a lot more information. You know, I, I remember, I'm old enough to remember, not just the Whitewater hearings where Mike Chertoff and Richard Benveniste were the lead counsel for the respective parties on the Whitewater Committee and had lots of time to ask questions. We all remember Arthur Lyman, for those of us who are old enough to yep. remember, at the Iran-Contra hearings. I also remember George Mitchell who was a former U.S. attorney when he was on that committee, asking very great questions as well. Look, the, 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 if you if you want these hearings to do something other than just produce sound bites, you have to give people more than five minutes to ask questions. You can't do a real cross examination of anybody in five minutes on complicated issues like this. You got to if you watched how Barry set it up with tape, and so forth. You need to do that, and second, you need people who really know how to ask questions. We have not seen an enormous amount of that i mean i just remember one episode relatively recently in which aoc was actually pretty good at it right no legal training but that's what you have you have to decide that's what you want to do
0: matt just a quick question could that could this have been done the entire time it's just a matter of the whether it's the republicans or democrats who's ever in the majority wanting you know not being able to resist the five minutes of tv could we always have had this
4: Yes, we could have always had this. And I'm told that even some of the more junior members of the committee would be fine with uh, the 30 minutes coming at the, the beginning of the hearings. And it's the senior members who don't want to give up their airtime.
0: But since he's been there and and after Burke kind of draws blood, we're having all this talk about a possible contempt action toward him. You know, what's that about? And do you see it as gaining actual purchase? Yeah.
1: Two two separate questions. Right. I, I, the, the part about contempt actually having teeth and actually getting somewhere is what I think troubles us the most, because certainly troubles me the most, because it, it goes not to be melodramatic here, but it, it really goes to the heart of whether we're going to still have three equal branches of government. And I would love to see Congress attempt to hit people with contempt and actually do something about it. But we, we have to understand that contempt really, contempt of Congress is, is going to end up getting referred to DOJ. It's going to potentially end up in the Office of Legal Counsel. It's going to go to the uh, the courts. And it's just stacked against Congress right now. That's where we are. But for people who say, hey, this isn't what contempt is about, it, not fully answering questions, being a pain in the ass, that's not contempt. But right. I, I, I go back, I did a little research on this, and there's an 1821 Supreme Court case called Anderson v. Dunn, and, and it, it gets to this question, well, well, what, what is contempt? <laughs> yeah, well, hey, 18.
0: listen. I, Turns out eight, Frank is way older than yeah, we thought. Still, yeah, Still absolutely. good law.
1: Yeah, so it says, were they wearing well, wigs it, in
0: this at the time? Okay,
1: uh, they might have been. Said that uh, it, it addresses Congress's power to hold someone in contempt, right? And it says it's essential um, that Congress was quote not exposed to every indignity and interruption that rudeness, caprice, or even conspiracy may mediate against it. So, nice bottom line. Yeah, so for those who say, "Hey, uh, you know, a guy thumbing his nose during a session is not contempt."
2: Um, Apparently, Supreme Court says, no, could be, you know, once again, the White House pushing the envelope of who can testify about what it's one thing for the White House under some umbrella of executive privilege to say that Hope Hicks, who worked for the president, can't testify about certain conversations she had with the president. There are lots of us who disagree with the, the extent to which that formulation of executive privilege is correct, but at least there's an argument that when the president is talking to his senior advisors, that there's some greater protection than there might be for other people. But Corey Lewandowski has <laughs> never worked for the United States government, right? He's, uh, he he, is a, he was a private citizen at the time that he was carrying these messages from the president to the Attorney General of the United States, to say basically, take the investigation back from Bob Mueller. You need to unrecuse yourself. You need to shut down the the, the obstruction parts. You need to only investigate like f- potential future interference with the Russians. And, you know, Lewandowski ultimately, according to the evidence developed, by Mueller didn't do it, and in fact tried to get Rick Dearborn to do it instead. But but which tells you a lot already.
0: Yeah.
2: To a private citizen, there is no argument. No argument that that conversation is in any way subject to executive privilege. And there's also no basis for the president of the United States to tell Dearborn and Porter, the other two folks who were supposed to be at that hearing, that they can't show up. The president of the United States doesn't have the power to tell people who don't work for him anymore
0: that you can't. I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. I think you know they just they assert it and they buy time. So we've got Dearborn, Porter, Lewandowski, all these inc- very far fetched attempts to defend, but that drag things into the courts. Given that. Matt, what, you know, what, what is the strategy for Nadler and the committee? Who do they call next? They got information from Lewandowski, but he was obviously a hostile witness. If you had to think about their strategy for the next one, two, three witnesses the next month, what would be your best guess?
4: You know they don't have a lot of other great uh, witnesses because the ones they really care about for the obstruction piece, the White House is 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 keeping them from from getting by a certain executive privilege. You know they could go to say Chris Christie, they could take a run at Rick Gates to talk about the you know the other half of the Mueller report, the the collusion piece. Um, but until they get a court ruling on the McGann subpoena, I, I think it's tough for them to go forward because they just, they don't have witnesses to do these hearings, and so they have to you know they waited three months to go to court, but now that they're in court, they have to try to get a ruling uh, on that that question as quickly as they can.
0: And can they afford to just cool their heels while that's happening?
4: Let me me say one thing. Fortunately, the the president keeps adding new things to (laughs) investigate, so they they may not have to to cool their heels. What about Michael Cohen, Joyce?
0: Any thoughts there? Might we see him? Yeah.
3: So let me first say that I agree with Matt's assessment, and I think a lot of this comes down to what ruling the committee gets out of the court, when it comes to Don McGahn, it's a frustratingly slow process when the clock is ticking really quickly. So the hope would be that they are ready to jump as soon as that resolves. You know, as far as bringing Michael Cohen back, perhaps to talk specifically about obstruction, we've already heard a lot from him. He hasn't really caught the public's attention, But something that the committee is, it looks like they're not going to do that I wish that they would reconsider, is whether or not you put Stormy Daniels and maybe Karen McDougal, the two women who were supposedly paid off using Michael Cohen's services, and whether they have any light to shed on this, because the allegation is that Cohen was paid for legal services, when in fact, that's not what he, he was functioning as. He was really just being a bag man, a fixer. And so I think that this is something that would have the value of both catching the public's attention and perhaps explaining more about how the obstruction worked in a, in a very gripping way.
0: Everyone seems to agree we really need this McGann ruling. When do we think is the soonest we see it? Anybody? Because the, obviously the administration is going to try to push it as long as it can.
3: You know, I've spoken with folks in the committee who seem to expect that they'll have something by Thanksgiving. Matt and I have talked about this a little bit, and we're not entirely sure if that in- includes any uh, part of an appellate component or not. But they seem to be bullish on their prospects.
0: No way. There's a hearing in ha- on Halloween They get a quick ruling, but obviously the administration appeals it. I mean, it seems to me even a fast disposition gets them, buys the Republicans into next spring or summer. Anybody think it's sooner than that?
3: Well, let me ask you this, Harry. You know, let's just say that they get a ruling in their favor. Maybe there's no stay of that decision. Well, that would seem to to be very difficult for me because it would sort of prejudice the parties while the appeal was in in motion. But if you don't expect a ruling on this, if you don't think that you can bring witnesses in, then it seems like this whole process is is really just doomed from the start. And they seem to be acting like they think it's for real. Even if
2: the House wins the lawsuit, leaving aside, let's say it happened in a week or two weeks, and the appeal got decided in a week or two weeks, that just gets Don McGahn into the hearing room. It doesn't actually get him to give more information than Corey, Corey Lewandowski gave, right? He's still going to be directed by the president not to answer certain questions. He still has the Maybe he'll reiterate all the things he said to Bob Mueller because maybe they'll make it, maybe he, can, maybe he can say to himself or the White House will say, hard to believe, that that stuff's no longer covered by the attorney-client privilege or executive privilege because he's already disclosed it. Right. But I, I, we're not going to get any more than we got for the Mueller but
3: report. But don't you think that would Hummington? be enough, Paul? I mean, with Lewandowski, we saw him resisting every effort to read text from the Mueller report because he didn't want that to become a viral soundbite. So that's I, that's what they're going to look for from McGann, getting him to say his own words. It,
2: but, but the question is, where does that sound go, does that soundbite go viral in any other community, other than those who are already uh, uh, sort of so against the president, right? In other words, does it does, does that go viral in a way that inflames public opinion more generally? And I'm that's where I'm a bit of a pessimist. I have to say, I think that those lines are drawn, and I'm not sure that Don McGahn's testimony ultimately will help will help promote an impeachment effort. Nor do I think necessarily it will even matter that much to the to the electorate. I think that the, the things are going to be fought on other grounds than that.
0: And I actually feel a kind of a pessimist on whether we get to that world because, Joyce, I think it's an excellent point. I can see a district court not granting a stay. But then I think the district the, – the Court of Appeals from for the D.C. reaches down and does it. All right. Um, wow, we could talk about this for weeks and maybe we, we will as it begins to play out. But, but right now it's time for our final segment – Five Words or Fewer, where we take a question from a listener and each of the feds has to answer in five words or fewer. Our question today comes from Crew Freeman, who asks, will this whistle hero person end up having to leak the info or maybe just walk up to Schiff's office and share? Is that legal? Um, Okay, feds, five words or fewer. Joyce?
3: Trump makes the legal illegal.
0: Matt
4: probably legal but fireable. <laughs> Paul Fishman.
0: The
2: reaction turns whistleblower act on head.
0: Mm. Judges. Okay, we're going to we're going to accept it. Um and Frank,
1: the whistleblower will regret his actions.
0: Judges are also accepting. All right. Uh and me um no and probably no accommodation. Thank you very much to Paul, Joyce, Matt, and Frank. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other FEDS-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFEDS.com, where we have, among other things, full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFEDS.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. And please do take the opportunity to give us your thoughts and see the feds try to answer your questions in five words or fewer, which, as we saw today, is sometimes a challenge they don't even meet. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Patton. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum. Transcripts by Matthew Flanagan. Special thanks to Betty LeVette for telling us about the definition of federal conspiracy. And thanks, as always, to the phenomenal Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Doledo LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.